0: Hi, Alex. Uh, Welcome to Network Capital. Today, we're really excited to have a conversation with you about education, technology, artificial intelligence, buzzwords that are thrown around quite liberally these days. Uh, but you have somebody who's had an intimate understanding of this space. Um, could you get us started by telling us who you are and what you do today?
1: So I'm very happy to be here. My name's Alex Beard, and I am a senior director at Teach for All, which is an organization that supports education reform around the world. And I'm a writer and author on the future of education and how we learn.
0: And uh, what got you interested
1: in the education space? So, almost 12 years ago, I began life as an English teacher in a secondary school in London. And I had been as a student to this lovely primary school in the countryside, and then to a secondary school that looked a little bit like Harry Potter's Hogwarts. And I'd had this great experience of education. Um, And I wanted to to share that. Um, And so I joined this school through an organisation called Teach First, which places new graduates in schools in disadvantaged areas. And I thought that I was going to change the world. I thought teaching was easy. You just stand at the front of the classroom and talk about ideas like I'd seen my teachers do and like I'd seen Robin Williams do in Dead Poet Society, but it was very different, my experience to that.
0: And um, was that an exciting experience, a nerve wracking experience? Um,
1: were you a good teacher? You know, it was, it was completely nerve wracking. Um, I remember those first days Um when I spent time in the classroom I think I've never prepared as thoroughly but still felt as thoroughly unprepared as I did in those first few weeks um, teaching kids in this school in South London but I think I quickly overcame that nervousness um, because I realized that the kids I was teaching were just like the kids that I had been at school with but they had just had very very different opportunities in life and had grown up in a very different environment. And I was struck by how smart they were and how witty they were. But they faced these big challenges at the same time. You know, half of them were on free school meals, which is a measure of deprivation in the UK. About half of them spoke English as a, a second language at home. So there were kids in the classroom who didn't speak any English at all, in fact. And all of them were sort of years behind where they should have been in their reading and writing through no fault of their own. Um, And I found that really frustrating as a teacher. I don't think I ever became a really fantastic teacher, um, but I did learn some things in that classroom. I learned about the potential of all children to succeed if we can give them the right conditions to do so. I learned that you know, our schools are stuck in the past. The methods I was using as a teacher, I thought might've been familiar to Socrates back in ancient Greece um, but the kids that I was teaching were, li- were living in the future they spent all night playing online video games they all had smartphones and that, it felt like there was this huge disconnect between what I had thought a teacher is and should be and the live reality of these kids, the difficulties they faced but also the way that they were surrounded by you know futuristic devices and ways of living and, and i, and I You know, the main thing I learned was that we needed to update, transform our education systems um, to better support students.
0: You know, as your experience, as you were realizing these things, as you were teaching, when did the writing bug hit you? When did you realize that there's a book to be told about, uh, say, the future of education and the future of learning? I've been following your writing extensively over the years, and I'm curious to learn how this all started.
1: Yes, so when I was a teacher, two things, maybe three topics, really interested me. One of them was what we were learning from neuroscience and psychology and early child development about how brains worked. Um, The second was seeing these advances we were making in new technologies. How might they change what learning is and how schools function? you know AI or the internet or augmented reality and I was interested in that question and finally you know the third topic was about what it would mean to be an expert teacher if we reimagine teaching as a complex craft rather than this thing that you're born to do or not born to do and so I was reading a lot about those topics and it sort of struck me that The kinds of books that I wanted to read, the kinds of articles that I wanted to read about education didn't really exist. There were these rich literatures in things like psychology or behavioural economics or medicine. These fantastic authors who are writing these books for a general audience and writing articles for a general audience about the ideas that guided their professions, about how we live, about who we are. And that was the kind of stuff I wanted to be reading about education particularly this writer incredible writer who's also um an incredible physician called Atul gawande um, yeah, and he writes
0: I adore his writing yeah he's brilliant isn't
1: he you know those books the yeah. Chetnik manifesto better being mortal and i thought what i thought i wanted to do was to try to to aspire to be a bit like the atol gawande of education Um you know it was a kind of lofty goal but i thought the way that he wrote those books you know, made those decisions and questions that are asked in the health sector seem so universal u- Universal to draw these lessons that apply in multiple business sectors that apply to society, to life. And I thought, we need some, I would like to try and write something like that for education. And I had been gaining a little experience writing about tech, edtech for this blog for the European Commission. Um, because I just started, you know, blogging about edtech because I thought it was an interesting topic, so I'd had a little bit of practice, but not really. I hadn't really written anything before, but I'd read a lot, like uh, always reading all the time. You know, always have a you know a few books on the go and read very widely, particularly nonfiction, but also fiction. And so I thought I'd I'd give it a shot. And I spoke to a uh, an editor. Actually, I, I, it was at a, an Atul Gawande talk. He came to London and gave a talk, and after that, I bumped into somebody who was a book editor, and I said, you know, what we need is a Atal Gawande type book for education and she said to me well do you know anybody who would try and write it? And I didn't say anything at the time but I thought well that's what I'm going to try and do and and I set off and wrote this proposal for a book and managed to get a contract for it and, and that's how the my writing life began. Which year was this uh, Alex? So I think that would have been in 2016 or 2015 well 20 no let me do the I think late, late 20. Yeah, 2016 I think I must have had that conversation when Being Mortal was out and Arthur one day was promoting it um, and you know the process I'd also you know I should also mention that I'd been fortunate at that point so after becoming a teacher I then left the classroom and began working for this organization Teach for All and we are a network of organizations in 50 countries around the world trying to, again, bring about education reform in different ways, working with local organizations, trying to imagine what education might look like. And through that, I'd been very fortunate to already travel the world and see in different countries what was working, what wasn't working. So I had this sense that there were these really great stories out there that were there to be told, really great ideas that people had about the role of technology, about how to use neuroscience, about how teachers um, could improve their performance and so I had this idea that it was sort of an Atul Gawande-ish style of book all about performance, all about what we should learn, about what it means to be human and so then you know four years ago 2016 I wrote a proposal for that book, a sample chapter so I wrote a sample chapter and then a synopsis of the whole book and submitted that to an agent who then agreed to take me on um, and then they submitted it to a publisher who agreed to publish it and then after that I went on this journey for a year um, on and off around the world where I visited places that I'd always wanted to go to that I hadn't been to before places like Finland and Silicon Valley and Singapore and Shanghai um, to write South up.
0: Korea i read, I read South Korea yeah I love the way you s- structured it uh, I'm gonna actually dive deep into each of these places but uh, could you uh, for those who haven't read the checklist manifesto could you in a few sentences explain what Checklist Manifesto for the Education means and uh, what was the broad thesis you started with?
1: Yes, yeah, so The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande is this amazing book which talks about how in any complex activity or profession, you can reduce complexity and improve performance by turning particularly complex tasks into a checklist of or a protocol of things that you must always do in those scenarios. Um, And it's intended as a way of ensuring high quality performance in any scenario. And one of his really nice examples that he gives is of a, uh, a restaurant in the U.S., which is called the Cheesecake Factory. And he loves right. going to the Cheesecake Factory at Aguande. Um And at whichever Cheesecake Factory branch you go to, he says you know, the quality of food is always very high. The product is always the same. The delicious soy glaze on the roast salmon is always you know caramelized in the perfect way and he wants to understand well if a restaurant can get its product so perfectly reliable and at such a high quality why can't we do that in these complex systems like the health system um and that was one of the questions i wanted to ask about education but what would it take to do education well for all kids um but actually when i set out to to do that as i began to get into it what i realized was that before kind of getting into those questions we had to explore this idea of what education is what is it that kids should be learning today how do our brains actually work what are we capable of um what is the role of school within society how is how are people doing this around the world and i ended up writing a book which was less about how systems perform highly and more about how we Decide what it is that we should learn today and how our brains work. Uh, that's fascinating. So
0: now you travel around the world, from Finland to Korea. Um, could you tell me what are some uh, some things that you observed in Finland? In one of your talks, you talk about the fact that, among other things, Finland has the highest uh, heavy metal bands per capita, and. That's right. um, the way they go about training their teachers and um, their educational philosophy is something that we can all learn from. So what struck you there and how is it that they use technology to augment what they're trying to achieve?
1: Yes, so first of all, the reason I went to Finland is because Finland is a really high performer in the global PISA tests, which are intended to find out which country has the smartest 15-year-olds. And Finland does, Finnish 15 year olds do very, very well on those tests, despite these interesting factors. You know, Finnish kids spend less time per day in school than most other students around the world. Um, they have plenty of time to spend on these really fun activities like being in bands, ice skating, doing arts, playing sports. You know, Finnish primary schools are places of real joy. I remember going to one and, you know, the teacher had set that primary school children the task of learning to make films and at the beginning of the lesson they all just ran off into the woods these eight and nine year olds where they remained for the next hour you know making films on their on their smartphones and it just seemed to be characterized by this real sense of of freedom. Um, Now actually the story of Finnish education is a bit different now the reason why I think it does so well first of all is that being a teacher is really prestigious in Finland. So there are 10 applicants for every one place on primary teacher training programs in Finland. It's the hardest course to get onto at university. If you ask people what what profession their ideal husband or wife would have, they say primary school teacher. It's sort of the highest status job in the country. Um, So that makes a big difference. Secondly, there's an amazing sense of shared responsibility I would say between the teacher, the student and the parents and the administrators in the system for how well kids do at school. Kids in Finland don't start school until they're seven years old. Um, No Finnish child will learn to read before they're age seven. They have these high quality kindergartens where they're learning through play and through storytelling and through imagination um, and through having a sense of security in the world. So all of these factors are Are coming together and then on top of it you have really good teachers now a lot of the time these really good teachers are using quite traditional teaching practices but they are also you know inquiring after new methodologies all the time and so i saw some amazing things about how technology was being used um, in the classroom. I went to the classroom with this one guy called Pekka Payura who is... Famous one famous for that, right? He has a... He's famous, way. he's famous, yeah. And he did this cool thing so he put up this... I saw him put this question on the board Um the kids then had to use smartphones and laptops to sort of beam their answers in. Then he put their answers in a bar chart on the board um, and showed what they had thought. Then he didn't tell them the answer but asked the kids to turn and talk to each other and then he got them to beam their answers in again and this time their answers had had changed because the kids had basically taught each other and he said to me that he saw his role as a teacher as being one of giving kids the knowledge and skills they needed to learn things for themselves Um, and he was using tech in his classroom in quite a simple way to support that so all of the students had some kind of a device that they were using he had set up a system of self-monitoring that the students could use using google docs so he had listed out all of the topics that they were going to cover that term and then all of the student names and students as they mastered a topic would put a emoji to track how well they felt they were doing on that topic like smiley face meaning i totally get this uh, to face crying with laughter meaning i've got no idea you must be crazy if you think i know how to do this and um what he was then Doing was allowing the students to see which other students knew or didn't know the topic, so they could then decide who to go and ask for help from, um, so that they would essentially teach each other. The kids would be their own support system. And he also like gave all of the students online resources at the beginning of the term, so they could access the learning materials, the tests. He even gave them the answers to the tests, to so sort of work at their own pace. So he was using very simple tech, Um, Google Google Docs, Google Spreadsheets, simple polls, and those were augmenting his ability as a teacher to enable the students to learn from him, but also to learn from each other and learn for themselves, to develop those skills of lifelong learning that are so important.
0: Wow, that that does sound fascinating. Seems like they're taking an ecosystem approach uh, and in a fun way using technology to really augment some of their traditional methods. Clearly, right. speak for, uh, speak for themselves. You know, now let's move our attention to China. That's one country that's really embracing technology, um, artificial intelligence to uh, to to train their next cadre of computer scientists and you know learning it all. Um, What's what did you observe in China that uh, that that you thought was going well, and um, is it that is it that the entire country is single-mindedly focused on training future computer scientists? Is it one-dimensional, multi-dimensional? Talk to us about what your uh, initial thoughts were on
1: China. Yeah, so in China, I went to a couple of places. I went to a, a primary school where I saw. The famous Shanghai maths mastery happening, and there, I went into a classroom of seven-year-old students. One of the the class captain led the school the class in a sort of rendition of this school song that was a little bit uh, eerie, a little bit. Um, like indoctrination, and then they jumped into this really intense 35 minute lesson where the teacher sort of ping-ponged the students through these very short activities, one or two or three minutes in length, in loads of different formats. So individual working, paired working, group work, call and response with the teacher. And the idea was that, so they were learning about number lines, how to use number lines um, to express fractions, and the idea was that with all of these little intensive activities, she was giving the students the maximum number of opportunities to learn about that concept. Like giving them 10 different ways of trying to understand it. So that in theory, all of the class would, would keep up. And it was amazing to see her do it. Like the idea that through drilling and repetition and memorization, that these students would master that content uh, more effectively and more efficiently than others. And I think this idea of mastery is something that's really core to the Chinese approach. It draws on an ancient Confucian tradition, but it also tallies with the latest neuroscience. We know now that if you want to be creative or a critical thinker, you first have to have laid down in your mind through repetition and memorization the cognitive architecture that you will later rely on when it comes to thinking big thoughts. So the mastery method that they're using is potentially helping them to, to become thinkers in the future. But actually, it's not happening right now. And that's because, you know, although practice makes perfect, which is what's going on in Shanghai, practice doesn't help you to make new, uh, to imagine. And and actually, this is something that policymakers in Shanghai um, and other parts of China are really concerned about. They're worried that their current system of education, which prizes mastery um, and the retention of knowledge, isn't adequately preparing young Chinese kids for the economy of today or the economy of the future, where critical thinking, creativity, entrepreneurship will all be prized very highly. And that's something which they're beginning to to ask questions about. But the difficult thing I think for somewhere like Shanghai, I went to a couple of experimental schools there. So um, a place called um, Peking University Future School, which is an experimental school um, in Beijing supported by a university there. And it looks a lot like uh, sort of Western private school, boarding school with lots of uh, creative activities, lots of freedom for the students, but it's only for this very small elite group of, of Chinese kids, but it is built upon this understanding that if you want to become creative, you want to be a critical thinker. Yes, you have to memorise a core body of knowledge, but you also have to have access to imagination, um, and that comes through freedom more than anything. So there's this, I don't know, these famous studies by the psychologist Ben Bloom, which show that you know he studied these 120 creative geniuses in fields like from everything from sculpture to mathematics to swimming and he found that these creative geniuses had two things in common first of all they'd all done you know a whole lifetime of deliberate practice they had done this hard work to get good at their field but he also found this amazing thing which we don't talk about so much which is that prior to becoming but prior to doing all that practice they had something that he calls a romance stage where they fell in love with that particular pastime, um, and that was characterised by play and discovery, freedom and imagination. And that's the bit that in Shanghai um, and other parts of China was missing, that they're trying to bring into the education system more. To have creative thinkers, you can't just be memorising and drilling. You also have to be thinking anew, combining ideas, working with others. Um, so that wasn't there. So. So it was interesting i mean the other thing about that system which i think is worth saying is that because it's currently so focused on repetition memorization and the preparation for these exams that chinese kids take um at the end of their education the Zhongkao and gaokao that they've created an education system where it's easier than other countries to automate the role of the teacher as somebody who gives knowledge to learners towards this very particular kind of exam that's taken in the end. And so they're sort of making themselves right for the automization of certain aspects of the teaching and learning process.
0: And a whole bunch of AI companies, some are using facial recognition, some are using personalized learning, and uh, it's... Are they winning the AI education race when you compare them with their peers around the world?
1: Well, it's so interesting. You know, The AI education race is all about the quantity and quality of the data that you can get your hands on. So, you know, the big promise of AI in education is that if you can closely and accurately monitor the progress of a student, what that student knows and is able to do, maybe by looking at their what they know based on the answers they give to test questions, then you can begin to predict what those students should learn next, where are the gaps in their knowledge, um, what content should be served to those students, they learn the next best thing, and if you then draw together that data on 10,000 students, you can begin to make uh, observe patterns and make inferences about well, typically, when a student has this gap, this piece of content seems to work best for the average student or for the student of this profile to help them learn. And you can imagine creating this system where you accelerate learning because you're getting more accurate at serving the content to the kid at the right moment at the right level of motivation. And that's the promise of of AI and education, we'd call it would be adaptive learning or or personalization. But to date, the quality of data that has gone into those systems has never really been good enough for any of this stuff to work. But now we're living in this world in which not only might you be able to gather all of this data on what kids and what kids know or don't know according to a system of knowledge points or looking across the curriculum. But you can also begin to install cameras in classrooms or in or in computers that are monitoring those students facial expressions or their posture to make inferences about their emotional state or motivational state and then in theory input those into the AI which is making this big analysis you can analyze the movement of the cursor or how long it takes a student to answer a question and again make inferences about their emotional or motivational state and again feed that information into your Um, machine learning engine and in order for that to be to actually work it's going to require a few things first of all copious data of a really high quality like those data points have got to be saying what we think they're saying whether it's looking at someone's expression on their face or the way a cursor is moving and at the moment I don't think they are that accurate secondly you need to have amazing AI researchers and scientists to build that platform so they can create an engine that can actually analyze the data. Um, And finally, you need humans in the loop that can sort of run the system, work with the AI teachers who can help interpret what the um, information is saying, and then help to sort of transform that or transfer that into a learning experience for kids. And it seems to me like China has some advantages in this front. First of all, the taboos about data gathering are uh, not there in the same way as they are in the U.S. and the U.K. Chinese parents don't seem to mind if their kids are monitored with cameras in classrooms. You know, Chinese citizens are quite accustomed to having ID cards, to having to scan their faces in when they check into a hotel. Every new mobile phone in China right now has to have an app installed, which allows the government to monitor um that phone in certain ways and the behaviors of of the user of the phone so this idea of surveillance is much more pervasive already in china it's just much more part of how life is and so you would expect that, that somewhere like that where there are you know hundreds of millions of students who might use these platforms where the taboos around data gathering are not the same that that would give chinese tech companies and also there's lots of money being invested in tech um in edtech both by, by, the government and by the government and
0: private players.
1: And private players, by private individuals. There's an enormous after-school tutoring market there, which gives a huge amount of money and investment and the potential for return on that investment to tech companies. I mean, I think the only place that is potentially comparable is India, probably. So in China, you've got these big players like um, Tencent, TAL, um, TAL, sorry, iFlytech, um, some of these companies that are, you know, globally recognised AI companies, um, but Tencent, for example, is investing in. How, I don't know how you say byju's, which is that like this huge app which is exploded across um, India right now. They sponsor the Indian cricket team, I, I think. Um, but I think you know India has. I don't know what the taboos are there around data gathering, but there is that potential to have an enormous user base. There is that um, sense of being accustomed to paying for. Um, education um, you know at a low cost level and so it seems like the conditions in india there's also a great tradition of you know very high quality um, computer scientists there is the potential for investment. So it seems like the conditions in india are quite similar in that sense to china so i think that india could also be one of those places that that really takes a lead in edtech
0: understood alex uh, i want to understand about south korea Um, I'm just going to ask you a few questions there. But uh, I can't help but wonder, what about the kids who don't want to study all of this? What about the poets and future philosophers, um, people who want to study social sciences? Uh, Will we see um, any of them coming out of places like China, um, which are prioritizing technology learning over everything else? Um, I'm not sure if you agree with the way I phrased this question, but uh, I would love to hear your thoughts.
1: It's a great question. I think that there's this big risk that we face in education. So for me, education is a fundamentally human profession. And the most important factor in education is still the teacher having a high quality human teacher in front of you in a classroom or one-to-one that is the best way of of receiving an education in that setting kids will learn more than they do otherwise but having a high quality teacher in front of every class in the world or every class in the country has proven to be a very very difficult thing to achieve so I think there are these two possible futures one in one future we elevate the status of teachers. We make it actually our most important human profession. We put teachers on a pedestal. We make it the most attractive profession to become. And then the teacher is the one who is deciding how to use the latest AI tools in their own classroom. They're deciding how to use, incorporate the latest neuroscience. They understand group psychology and are coaching the kids to achieve great things. They're teaching their students how technologies work, what an algorithm is, how they govern our lives. But the teacher is is the person who is in charge and the technology is a tool for the teachers and students to achieve their own purposes. That's my hopeful future for the role of technology in education. But there's this other future which I could see developing where we're able to create a relatively low cost online mainly computer driven education where kids are at home guiding themselves through online tasks they may occasionally check in with a teacher but in general they're working through activities the system is automatically correcting them and the whole of education is automated and I think in that future, the quality of that education will be lower. It will be a little narrower. It will be less human. It will be more focused on technical skills like mathematics or literacy um, and learning of facts. On the other hand, the human version of education led by teachers will be more suited to learning to imagine and to create and to collaborate and to connect to people uh, around the world. And so we risk seeing this division and and the big risk is one of inequality the first model which develops our human potential is more expensive because it requires people the the kind of low-cost tech model has the potential to be much cheaper and potentially better than some education that some people around the world are currently receiving and price is always going to play a role there so we have this in this future in which only the rich are able to access this education to become poets and artists, already somewhat the case, right? Whereas those with less resources will have this cut price, more regimented um, education, you know, perhaps on tech platforms with embedded advertising where those kids are giving up their data in return for some free products. And I think that that's a scary future to think about. So I think, it's not that China will have one way and, and Finland another, I think it's that within countries we might see, we risk seeing a growing divide.
0: Yeah, that's that's a point really well taken. Um, so now moving to South Korea, one thing that scares me about uh, that market is uh, its testing and how people prepare for examinations, even, even in India and uh, Um, some of uh, there are lots of these sweatshops that train people for taking exams Mm. but South Korea takes it to a next level how are they doing with uh, with the educational crisis around the world are they preparing their students for the future
1: yeah it's a great question and so one of the interesting things about South Korea is that currently it's got the highest proportion of university graduates to population of any country in the world. So by one measure it's the most educated country in the world. On the other hand it's also got the highest proportion of robot workers to human workers of any country in the world. So there's this sense that perhaps there's something going on in the education system which is making South Korean people especially easy to automate despite these high levels of education and you can see it so I went to South Korea on the day of this thing called the Sunyung, which is the big end of high school exam that's taken by hundreds of thousands of Korean teenagers each year happens on a single day across eight hours and on this morning I was in um, Seoul in a place called Songdo Future City which is this smart city on the outskirts of Seoul and That morning, I had seen police lining the streets on motorcycles and they're waiting to accompany anybody who happens to be running late to the exam to get there on time. During the English listening exam that happened that day, they grounded all flights in the country so that kids' concentration isn't affected during that bit of the exam. And they do that every year. And they've essentially turned this exam into... uh, like finely calibrated, almost mechanised process. Like Korean learning seems to be all about marginal gains. The newspapers run articles for weeks ahead saying what you should wear in the exam, what you should eat in the weeks before the exam for optimal exam performance. And I was there to hear this, to follow the the, the, the story of a young boy called Seung Bin Lee. And he told me actually that during that exam that day, he had become worried about overheating and the overheating would affect his exam performance and so halfway through this exam he went to the bathroom and took off his underpants because no. that would somehow improve improve his important performance and he said to me look the thing is about this exam it's better you do better if you don't think you have to become an instrument of pure exam taking technique he literally told me thinking is the enemy in the Young." and there's a sense that the whole education system there has been created to turn kids into these finely calibrated exam taking machines, not independent thinkers, but people that can understand this sort of weird problems that are posed in this senior exam. I literally all the exams are multiple choice so that they can be you know, marked perfectly and easily. There's no sense of interpretation by a marker. And I did some of the English questions from the multiple choice exam and I couldn't get the answers right. The, the text was in English, the answers were in English, but it wasn't clear to me which were the right answers. And there actually there's a whole internet subculture around looking at the English questions from the SUNY exams, if you're an English speaker. And it's basically, they've created an exam that's a bit like a decoding exercise. The Sun exam setters have a certain way of thinking about knowledge and questions that you have to understand deeply before you can even begin to, to answer the exams. And I think it's problematic. Um, you know, Korean kids, first of all, are suffering a massive mental health crisis. You know, this exam is taking a real toll on the mental health of teenagers. They have the highest suicide rate amongst teens of any country in the world. Kids are losing their whole childhoods to this exam. Soon Bin, this kid, told me that he spent 14 hours a day, five days a week for the whole three years leading up to this, this exam, preparing, revising at school during the day and then in these tutoring centres hagwons they call them in the evening and he spent 12 hours a day on both Saturday and Sunday as well his whole teenage years were spent preparing for this exam and what we know now about our teenage years is that a fundamentally important moment in our lives for being creative for understanding who we are for knowing our place in the world for changing how we how we live and so I sort of feel like the the system, though, although it's fantastically successful at a sort of acquisition of knowledge, and they do very well in PISA tests, and they have a very strong economy. You know, it's not, there's an education miracle there. This is a country which, where the economy has grown 40,000% in the last 60 years, thanks to education. So we shouldn't, you know, throw out um, these ideas. But with that growth in, in quality education, there's a lack now, I think, of. Of capacity in that system for helping to prepare kids with uh, abilities of cri- independent th- thought of collaboration of critical thinking of inquiry but they're going to need to continue to be successful in the economy of the future
0: um, this is like just fascinating I had no idea teenagers could study and have 100 hour weeks actually in India also people take it to the next level but this is uh, pretty intense um, can you explain uh, what are the skills that will be required in the 21st century? And I don't mean um, stuff that we hear in reports. I think, as as an experienced educator who's traveled the world around, how do you see a school of 2030? Um, explain it to a lay layperson what what that means and what kind of skills would be available at a premium? What kind of impact would things like automation have on the careers that uh, people aspire for in the
1: future? Yeah. So I think, first of all, you know, some part of school is always going to be about learning the knowledge that helps you get on in society, the reading, the writing, the maths, the science. But I think that in the future school will achieve that much more quickly. There'll be adaptive AI platforms that teachers deploy to help kids quickly master that kind of content, to help get the stuff into long-term memory that we need to use in our working memory to to think those big thoughts. So let's let's, let's assume that's happening. And then the interesting question then comes, is then about what's the purpose of education? What should we be learning today? And how do we imagine learning it and I think that there are a few important things um, which we maybe don't think about that frequently the first idea for me is that we need to begin to learn in partnership with our new technological tools one of the things is that you know we need to understand first of all how they work like every child needs to know how an algorithm functions you know, doesn't need to necessarily be able to, like, to a deep level complexity, but how does an algorithm work? Every child needs to understand the way that the social media platforms that govern our lives are making decisions about what content to show us or what, you know, understand the new power structures of today. But also, I think more than that, I think that we need to see our new tools as possible partners in learning. We always, we're all quite familiar with using a calculator as part of the learning process, but what if we had um, in our classrooms access to devices where we offloaded some of our memory? It's not clear yet what we need to store in our heads and what we don't need to store in our heads, but it seems probable that just as we offload some calculation to a calculator, we might be able to offload other parts of what we learn to um, computer assistance. I think that's going to be important. Um, the second thing, I think, is understanding that knowledge isn't only what exists in the head of a single individual. It's not just taking the knowledge from a book and getting it inside your own head. Knowledge is something that exists collectively for humans. This idea that like, you know, education should be competitive. It's about one individual against the other. It's completely wrong. We need to see education as a common project to, increase the knowledge and ability of all of us together and so within classrooms I think that's going to mean a lot more um, learning to collaborate with others learning to inquire learning to probe what others think more debate more group discussions and that's not because you know it's good to learn to collaborate which of course it is it's because that's how we need to understand how knowledge is constructed I think beyond that we need to reconnect with our way of relating to the natural world. Like it's funny. On the one hand, the kids of today are part of this fourth industrial revolution, which is exciting. You know, technology is booming, AI is growing we have these amazing new tools, ways of connecting with people on the other side of the world, ways of extending human cognition using artificial intelligence. On the other hand, we're facing, and we're in the middle of this sixth great extinction of climate breakdown, of a world that may no longer sustain our way of life. And I think that has to become part of everything that we learn at school in the future. What are new ways of living? How do we better ensure that every child has a connection to the natural world that understands the systemic nature of our existence, the symbiotic relationship that we have with the world around us, um, with other human beings, but with the environment too, with our tools? So I think that's going to become vitally important. Like, Will kids be spending more time out there in the world to get a sense of that? Will we rediscover old ways of knowing you know, new ways of being spiritual. We're not going to, of course, throw out the amazing technological advances and scientific knowledge that fuel our civilization, you know, medicine and AI. Like, we'll of course, keep advancing those tools and technologies. But at the same time, are there ways of knowing ourselves that will become important and ways of knowing the natural world that will stop us from seeing it only as something from which to extract resources or productivity, but will lead us to, New ways of of living in a in a more balanced fashion. I think that's going to become become really really important. And then, you know, within that, there's this idea of of understanding ourselves and our and our emotions. Now, it's not again, it's not just about oh, emotional intelligence is a really helpful um, skill in the future because we're going to need to collaborate and create. No, I think we're going to be living in this you know world in which companies, governments, devices begin to know us really well, know our habits and behaviours and emotions and motivations. So I think we're going to need to get to know ourselves really deeply as a way of retaining some agency in a system which is always trying to know us better than we than we know ourselves. So I think that's going to be really important too. But perhaps the single greatest thing that's important um, for us today is To move away from this idea that any knowledge is sort of dispassionate or just purely intellectual, but for knowledge to become about taking action and above all to be about care, caring for one another, caring for ourselves, caring for the the world around us. um, Somehow over the past hundreds of years, we have turned education into a technical exercise of knowledge acquisition. You know, we acquire knowledge and then we deploy it for economic productivity. But the history of human education, if you go back further, is more the history of our ability to take care of the generations that come after us, to transmit wisdom down through the generations, to nurture other individuals who have different aims and ideas and goals to our own and to recognize that as part of the development of our common humanity the role of the grandmother in passing down wisdom or the mother in nurturing um, the next generation and I think that we need to make that the ultimate project of education of the 21st century that above all we place care at the heart of it care for ourselves for our families for our communities but also for our environment for others and other parts of the World, And I think that that could really fuel these things that are important, you know, global collaboration in an era of a a global pandemic, where we need to share information quickly and rapidly. We need to have the right attitudes to underpin a system like that. Um,
0: Since you mentioned global pandemic, I mean, I have to ask... uh, What's going on with the coronavirus crisis? How are education institutions dealing with it? And uh, do you see some changes that will be brought about uh, that will be permanent and uh, long lasting after once this crisis is over, if this crisis is over, hopefully soon?
1: So I think that right now there are between 1.4 and 1.5 billion kids worldwide who would be in school but aren't who are now at home and it's forcing us to question how education works what education is what we should do at this moment but at a very kind of urgent level schools school systems people that work in education are asking a number of questions first of all how do we support the most vulnerable families around the world, who might need, who might lack food or documentation or access to health services? That's becoming an urgent concern of schools, because school, you know, teachers and 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 school leaders care deeply about the the kids in their communities. Secondly, how to continue to deliver an education virtually, you know, where students have access to internet and devices how to how to do it that way where kids don't have access to internet or devices how to do it through radio through sending resource packs out like what does education look like where kids and teachers can't be in a room together or can't even gather together like that question is people are people are asking um and those are difficult questions for which there aren't there haven't necessarily been answers in the past. And I think that some of them might fundamentally shift how we think of education in the long run. First of all, I think there's likely to be a shift towards greater adoption of virtual education models. You know, now that we know this kind of thing can happen, it would be wrong if we didn't prepare for it in the future. So I think every school, every teacher in the future will have either a digital education plan or a plan for how kids will learn when they can't be in school. I mean I think we just have to plan for that now so that will be set up. Secondly I think that it's going to, it has the potential to change for the better the relationship that exists between institutions of education, education professionals and those who are informally educating kids, you know, parents, carers, caregivers, grandparents, I think we're going to have to think a little more critically about how we work together, how formal education and informal education works together as a common system. Suddenly, we have parents, grandparents, others around the world who are asking, you, what is it that my daughter or son is learning right now? Why are they learning this? How is it? best for them to learn is how do I support them to learn? And these are questions that we've been, been implicitly asking, you know, for the whole history of human civilization, but I think maybe we'll make them more explicit now, more explicit um, in the future. So we need planned schools would have to think about what role do they want parents to be playing in the education of kids. How can they support parents to support those students in their education? And I think that thirdly, we might see a a change in what it is that feels important to learn. I've been speaking to teachers around the world who are now saying, well, right now it seems less urgent that the students in my class learn, you know, about European history in the 19th century. And it feels a bit more urgent that they learn about, I don't know, how food supply systems work, how a pandemic spreads, how to experiment with something at home, how to... You know, search things on the internet or to support their family so I think it might change what we prize in terms of the the content of an education and the final thing that 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 might be affected is that you know because of the because of this the effect of this pandemic on society you know this this sense that we're all putting together to volunteer to help one another as communities because of the effect on the economy that Certain sectors will really struggle. I think, hopefully, I hope I'm hopeful that we might see a surge in new teaching applicants in young people that want to make it their life's mission to be involved in the work of educating others. So those things, those are the things I think might that, that might be affected in the long run.
0: I loved your last point. I think empathy might become uh, the front and center of how we learn, something that you mentioned earlier in the podcast, Alex. I can't Mm -hmm. tell you, it was a real pleasure speaking with you. The way you shared the concepts, your experiences around the world has given us mental models to understand this uh, complex problem. Really appreciate your time. And uh, now we'll get to sending it to 100,000 subscribers all around the world. Thanks very much for your time.
1: Thanks so much, Akash. I really appreciate it.